Hi, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you for joining me today. Today, you're listening to episode 88, and I'm talking with Dina Castor. Dina is one of the best American distance runners of all time. She holds the half marathon and the marathon American record with a half marathon time of 107.34 and a marathon time of 219.36. She also holds the half marathon and marathon master's records. Dina won a bronze medal in the 2004 Olympics in Athens, and she also has won the London and the Chicago marathon. Dina just finished up her first book, which I already pre-ordered, and you should too. And in this episode, we talk about her book, we talk about her career, we talk about the power of positive thinking and how that can revolutionize and change the way you run. Dina runs with the Mammoth Track Club, and her husband, Andrew Castor, is the coach over there. This was such a fun conversation with Dina, and I know you guys are going to love it, and I know anybody running a fall marathon or spring marathon... Anybody who has a big goal is going to take so much away from the words that Dina has to share with us. Before we get started talking with Dina, I want to thank Generation You Can for supporting this podcast. Generation You Can powders and bars are powered by a super starch, which is the secret ingredient. It's the secret sauce to the success of athletes who use it. And I am an athlete myself who uses it. You guys, if you haven't tried it yet, try out their sample packs. You can try out their samples for less than $5 and free shipping. If you go to generationucan.com slash samples, use the promo code another all caps to get another 15% off that already less than $5 deal. If you are already loving their products and you just want to purchase something from them, you can use the discount code another all caps to get 15% off your order. And don't forget, you know who else uses Generation You Can is Meb. And Meb's running the New York City Marathon this weekend as his last big hurrah. And I bet he's fueling with some Generation You Can. Hey, if you guys are loving the show, I would appreciate it if you would head over to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. It is one of the best ways potential new listeners can find us, so every little bit helps. I appreciate each and every one of you who have already done that and... I'm going to give a shout out to MelNew87, who says, from just checking in to addicted. She says, I love this podcast. I started by just checking in for an episode or two, and now I'm totally addicted and a Patreon supporter. Oh, thank you, Mel. I love Lindsay's guests and would love to hear from Kim Connolly on the podcast since she trains in Sacramento. Hey, I'd love to have Kim Connolly on the podcast as well. If anybody has connections with her, let me know and we'll get that set up. I believe I've definitely already sent her crazy stalker Instagram messages. Who knows? But I will work on getting that lined up for you, Mel. All right, guys. Enjoy my conversation with Dina. Okay, so people listening, I'm so excited. We are talking with Dina Castor today and um, just filled out a contact form on our website, and I got a personal email back. It was really me. Can you believe it? <laughs> it was really you. Well, a lot of times you email people, especially professionals, and you'll get, like, their PR person, or you'll get, you know, some automated response or no response at all. So I was so tickled when I had a personal response that said, I'll give you all the time you need as soon as I turn in my book. Yeah. And I, I mean, I get, you caught me on a good day when I had like a second or it might've come in, your email might've come in right when I turned on my computer because I neglected a lot of emails over the past year. Um, I, I'm 
regretful in saying that, but um, it's just what needed to happen in order to get that book done. So what have you been doing today? Did you just get done with practice? I did. My Mammoth Track Club teammates and I went down to the track that my husband and I built a couple of years ago, not with our own two hands, but with a lot of fundraising efforts. Um, and uh, um, we had a workout down there, but it was actually a magical day because all three generations of the Mammoth Track Club were there. Meb was doing a final workout before his New York City Marathon um, retirement parade, 26.2-mile um, retirement parade. Um, so he was down there with Coach Larson, who originated the Mammoth Track Club with Coach Joby Hill, my coach. And, um, and then Terrence Mahon's group was down there, um, a lot of them coming from Boston and San Diego, um, to do a workout on the Green Church Road, as was our group with my husband, Andrew Castor. So three coaches of the different generations of the Mammoth Track Club, all on the same stretch of road, doing a workout together. It was a pretty special morning. Did you do the workout, too? I did, yeah. We just had on and off mile repeats on on the asphalt. We have a lot of, um, mostly our guys getting ready for um, fall marathons and the uh, 5K coming up. So I assume that you're going to New York for the marathon to cheer? I am to cheer. I'm going to be a a wild fan. I I don't like to miss out on marathon weekends. I was in Chicago and got to see some amazing performances by um, by the winners, but but also the Americans did really well there, fared well. So I love going to marathon weekends. I get um, I get to go to a lot of the VIP events, stay up late, wake up early. So I'm exhausted by the time the the weekend's over. I feel like I ran a marathon myself, but I really I just love to be at these races because they every time they just unfold in an unpredictable way, and you're you're granted this great experience, and you walk away inspired. What is your game plan for the race? Like, will you be at the start line? Um, I won't be at the start line because the only way back is to run it, sure, <laughs> to sure. run the race um, um, from the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in Staten Island. So um, so my daughter, Piper, six years old, we're going to make signs the night before and um, and we'll be out on the course to, to cheer on the runners. We're going to cheer for Shalane and Meb and um, and make sure the Americans have a, a good um, a good cheering section um, on the streets of New York City. Okay, so before we dig into your career a little bit and your own running, while we're on the topic of New York, I know a lot of people that are listening, so I'm going to release this Friday, next Friday before New York. So hopefully a lot of people will be listening that Saturday. What What is your favorite part of the New York City course? You know, I have to say that my favorite part of the New York course are just the bookends of it, the start line and the finish line. Um, the start line, because being on that bridge, besides the views being spectacular from the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, it's that energy of 50,000 people standing on a bridge together, and you could feel the hum and vibration of the anxiousness of every single person on that bridge. It's really a um, it's a surreal experience, and anyone who is into marathoning, needs to put that on their bucket list if they haven't already done this race. It's really, really fascinating. And then you click off one borough at a time um, before getting into Central Park, um, leaving um, Harlem and coming up through Central Park back into back into um, Manhattan and making your way to the finish line. And that finish line, for some reason, New York is a challenging course. It's it's the hills. It's the asphalt seems harder than any asphalt anywhere else in the world for some reason. Um, or maybe it's just the brutal competition that, that makes you exhausted and not handling it as well. Who knows? But, um, but that finish line is such a celebration. And you have bleachers of people, like this wall of sound. It's, it's, 
to me, it, it seems like this is what must, it must feel like to be in the World Series or, or the Super Bowl, to just hear this roar of, of people cheering you in. And they never tire themselves. The spectators for four, five, six hours do not lose enthusiasm. They're just there for the runners every step of the way, and it's a beautiful event in that regard. What are the final thoughts you have, like when you're standing on the start line of a race that, of that size, when you're about to just go for it? Ready or not, here I come. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I could do about the preparation at that point. I, at that point, I really know um, that no matter how my buildup went, whether it was superb or whether it was subpar and I have some excuses in my back pocket, I, um, I really try to um, to just mentally engage because that's what's going to bring the best out of, of whatever your fitness level is on that day. You can get the best 100% out of whatever it is, whatever your capacity, your physical capacity, you can only get 100% of it if you are 100% mentally engaged. So for me, it's, it's okay. This is a 26.2 mile mental challenge. And and um, in the beginning, it's pretty it's pretty fluid, but sometimes it gets hard at six miles. Sometimes it gets hard at ten. Sometimes, if you're lucky, it doesn't get hard till after twenty. Um, but to to just know that that I'm going to have to mentally get through a crux here, and I'll be stronger and wiser and um, and more proud of myself if I can get through it. But it's only it's it's always a mental hurdle before a physical one. So speaking of that, you recently submitted your book. Amen. (laughs) How excited are you about that? (laughs) So excited because honestly, I've been working on it for a few years, but this past year working with my co-author, Michelle Hamilton, she wrote for Runner's World. She worked at Runner's World for years. Um, So I was very fortunate that she agreed to this. And I think through the process, she wished she hadn't at certain points, (laughs) but I'm grateful she stuck by my side and drew out the best in me. Because it was it was the hardest thing I have ever done. It was mentally grueling. It was it was exhausting in every sense of the word. Everything that I that I am, I'm a runner. I'm a mom. Um, had to be put aside. I love to sleep. All my ideals were pushed aside for this book project. I was waking up at 4 a.m. to get on Skype at 4 a.m. so that. Um, I could be on the phone for 14, sometimes 15 hours of the day with Michelle writing and rewriting and discussing. And um, and she was trying to draw more out of me. And I was like, this is all I have, like in tears. Like it was just hard. It was lack of sleep. I didn't have my outlet of running. I felt like I was neglecting my family all so that I could get the right, the right words on the page. And I'm so grateful that she was able to draw that out of me. We also had a great editor, but... Um, as with anything, I want my coach to pull out the best in me. And I was lucky enough in the book writing process to have people around that, that drew out the best in me a hundred percent. So it was hard, but there's a lot of, a lot of gratification in a difficult task. So I'm really proud of the end product because I really feel that, um, what I wanted, what I set out to do was to, to make sure that I was giving people a gift. I don't really care that people know that I'm left-handed or that I have an obsession of photo booths, but I do care that they can, that they can that they can get something out of this, that they can be mentally stronger. After every chapter, they can apply what I applied in that chapter at that time in my career to be able to grow as an athlete or as a business person. So um, so I, I really feel like each chapter is able to do that. So I'm really proud of, of the of the manuscript that we sent in. Yeah, I pre-ordered the book. Super excited Yay! about it. Yeah. 
I, I was listening to a podcast one time where these authors kept talking about how important it was to pre-order books for that author. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, this is my first pre-order I've ever done. Oh my gosh, how funny. And I, um, I just pre-ordered Richard Branson's book and, and got it and got it in the mail and I devoured it. It was so, it was such a great read because he's a fun, he's a fun guy and his voice came across um, so authentically in his book, Finding My Virginity. So um, it was, it was great. And I just got it last week was when it came out. So pre-ordering is fun because it's the anticipation. You get that email, like it's almost here. Uh-huh. Your book's going to arrive next week. It's been shipped from our, from our warehouse. So, um, so I was really excited to get that. And I didn't understand the importance of pre-sale either that it, um, that it goes towards that first week's, um, launch of the book, which, which was totally new to me. It's, just one of the many things I've learned in this process. Yeah, well, and in the book, the book is a lot about the mental side of the sport, and um, I'm really interested in that. I'm Right now I'm reading uh, Matt Fitzgerald's book, How Bad Do You Want It? Have you read that? I have, and he's a great writer. He's produced a lot of great books, and um, and just a dedicated dedicated runner. He's dedicated to every facet of the sport, from from physical physical aspects to mental aspects and um, just a, a well-rounded coach and athlete himself. So I want to talk to you about that because you say, um, you know, at one point in your career, the mental side of your training kind of, I think it kind of like revolutionized your training and running. How did that, how did you come to that and how did it change, you know, your career even? Yeah, so it was when I moved to Alamosa, Colorado, to work with Joe V. Hill. I wanted to be at altitude, and I wanted to learn. I felt like um, like I pretty much relied on my talent my whole life, and then realized I didn't really know a lot about the sport um, because I just relied on my talent. I think subconsciously, when you're told so many years since being young that you're talented at something, you just kind of let it let it ride out itself um, organically. And once I once I realized I didn't know a lot, I craved learning more. And so Coach V. Hill was a great person to um, to get under the wings of and realizing he was in charge of, of the program, of, of the workouts. So he took that, that thought process away from me, and I trusted all the workouts. But I realized that when I came to practice, like, I'm so tired, and my head would hang down, and I'm so tired was just on repeat on my head. And I'm like, well, this kind of sounds like a drag. And, and then I tried to like toy with my thoughts and my words and how they played within a workout or even my approach um, coming into a workout and realized with one single thought, the significance of changing it shifted, shifted something in my body. Like there was a release of energy. Maybe it was the right hormones. And it's interesting that simultaneously the um, positive psychology was getting its beginnings. And I was I was doing an experiment on myself with my thoughts, but now there's all this science to back up um, the, the cortisol levels. Your stress hormone goes down when you have positive thoughts, and, um, and your endorphins and other great hormones get released. So now there's science to back up all, the, all of this. So we don't touch on the science as much in the book. Um, but allude to it in certain places, and we'll certainly um, certainly be doing a follow up um, workbook that that complements the the book that'll be more of the the science behind it. But that shift was so powerful. I just kept playing with it and playing with it and reading books and toying toying with my perspective and even even my my language like like don't lose contact with the people ahead of me. My teammates seems like a really encouraging thing, but but I'm using a lot of negative words. So instead of don't lose contact, 
when you're using don't and lose, I decided to say like maintain contact. And it was an immediate shift in my posture that I felt in the middle of the run. So I just kept toying and toying with things. And um, I think that persistence with it built and built on each other. And it was amazing to me the amount of work I could do injury-free for so many years by um, by just having a good attitude. And it seems a little cliche, but I get pretty nitpicky on how I describe that um, that toying with, with my thought and the exact effects it had on my performance. Well, and I don't remember where I read this, but in a post-interview, you were talking about the LA Marathon in 2013, and you said you didn't feel good, you weren't having a great day, but you said you got 100% out of yourself on an 80% day. And I think every marathoner's question is, how did you do that? Right. And that's certainly a mental, a mental, <laughs> mental thing. And it's, it's something that my husband has, has taught me that, um, and, and preached to our entire team here that we don't train day in and day out so that, so that on race day, if you feel a hundred percent and, and the, the stars are aligned and the weather is perfect and, um, and everything is in, is in your favor to reach your goal. We train to the, to the point that, if we have, a, if we're feeling eighty percent on a seventy-five percent weather weather day, and hell, even if the odds are against you, that you could still reach your goal. And so, I love that perspective. That we're not waiting for perfect. We're just getting out there and we're executing, no matter no matter what we have and don't have control over. over that we can go out and, and get that done. And the only way you can do it is if you don't um, you don't succumb to negativity. That you just always um, you're resilient and you're persistent and whatever positive words you're you're twisting the fact like oh I missed my water bottle shoot I'm going to get dehydrated well no let's grab another glass on the course and you'll get your let's grab whatever they're serving on the course and you'll get your next water bottle but pay attention it's a sign to pay attention and just continuing to go with the flow and and um, and troubleshoot the best we can be a solution seeker instead of a victim when um, when things are happening, if it's a windy day or or a or a rainy day, and you were hoping for a Boston qualifier, you know, try to try to play with it in your mind um, to to try to get the best out of yourself despite those conditions. Now, um, like you said earlier, you know, sometimes you start feeling bad at mile six. Sometimes it's ten, and hopefully not till twenty. Though, do you have any words that you kind of like repeat to yourself or say when you're in that last ten k of a marathon? Yes, and um, I think mantras are good, or um, or a positive excuse is always good. Um, but to me, it's whatever it needs to be authentic. Not not the same solution works every time. At one point, I used to tell myself to define myself. That um, so much in the at the end of a race when you start to suffer and have a little pity party um, out there on the roads and and maybe on the verge of tears or asking why did I why did I sign up for this. To think, you know, at, at that point, it's so easy to say, you know what, just finishing is 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 going to be fine, and and kind of um, kind of go with Plan B. But when you look at it as as a way to that those decisions to to give up or dig down to to um, throw in the towel or drop the hammer when you're given those choices in a race, um, and that's the most important part of the race, that decision right there to continue on or to secede to to your thoughts. Um, or to your pain or discomfort um, is defining who you are. It's not really about the race. We go out there and um, and we realize on some days how much bigger the sport is than how much how life changing it's been and 
how great it's been for our health and our well-being, um, but we give up on it so easily when it starts to get hard. And I think when you remind yourself that this is a moment that you get to define who you are, this is reinforcing your, your, your drive and your determination and your commitment in that moment, in that one second. And when you make that habit, then um, it makes it makes um, it makes staying committed that much easier the next time around. So I think it's the habit of thought you're cultivating, the habit of choices. Um, and so I make it a big deal. It, like win, winning or losing really isn't a big deal, but I make the choices in getting there a big deal. I love that. Define yourself. That's so good. Yes. So you hold the American record in the marathon and the half marathon. You won a bronze medal in the Olympics. You've won the Chicago Marathon, the London Marathon. Of all of those experiences, do you have one that's the most special? Oh, gosh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> because each one of those goals was so important at the time because it, it, it made me draw more out of myself. And that's, that's the most important thing. I was... Um, when Jordan Hesse was having such a great Chicago marathon and on American record pace through the first half, um, the television commentators were saying, are you starting to sweat a little here? And I was like, no, like that record, that Joan Benoit's record was, was out there for me to chase. And it drew everything out of me in training and in the race itself to be able to achieve that. And I'm so grateful that she had that benchmark for me to strive to, because it really did bring out the best in me um, for a good year as I focused and committed committed my, um, myself to that goal. And after that, like, it's fine. I don't need it. any. like, I don't need that. I don't need that record anymore. It's for, it's for someone else's taking it's there for, to draw out the best in somebody else. So, um, so I feel like every one of those, every one of those goals that I went after, whether it was a major marathon win or an Olympic medal or, or a record, what like served its purpose in such a big way each time I set out to do it. So they're all, they're all beautiful in that. My first marathon win in Chicago, man, that was amazing. But I sure thought winning would feel better. Mm. It was a really hard, it was a really hard win. I made it harder myself by going out too fast and suffered greatly in the end. Um, so they all, they all have their, they all have their, their beauty. And when I reflect on them, but they, they also, you know, you nitpick at little things you could have done a little more perfectly that day. Now, when you're winning, you know, winning the Chicago marathon. <laughs> Do you ever, did you ever like in that last mile kind of look like to your left and to your right? And were you kind of just really paying attention to number two? Um, I, I feel like one of my, one of my greatest, um, one of my greatest characteristics is that I pay attention. I pay attention in life. I pay attention in racing. I, um, I pay attention to the competition, to the spectators, when they tell me like in the, in the same moment, I hear that I've got a five second lead. And then I hear I have a hundred meters and I'm like, well, which one is it? Is it a hundred meters or is it five seconds? And I'm toying with that in my mind. And maybe it causes me to glance over my shoulder to make my own, um, to make my own synopsis. But, um, but I think, I think I just pay attention in Chicago when I was winning and I had at one point a pretty good lead over Constantina Dita of Romania and she was closing in on me so quickly as I was fatiguing at the end of the race that my, I think I won by only four seconds. It was, it ended up being a pretty close race. So I looked over my shoulder that day. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I could hear her, hear her footsteps and I wasn't so happy to hear them again. So, um, so I definitely, definitely, um, have the art of paying attention. So now you also hold the, um, master's half record and marathon record is, is, 
accomplishing a master's record, is that as fulfilling as the American record? Yes, absolutely. Because you know more, you're wiser <laughs> when you're a master, you're a master of something. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was important to me for, for different reasons. One was that the, my buildup was rocky. The race itself had a lot of hiccups in it. And I thought to myself, you know what, this is everything that I've ever learned and ever practiced about um, positivity and optimism is coming, is coming together for these races. And so I was really proud of those races. I also felt my husband had just taken over the Mammoth Track Club and was, was coaching me for the, past, for the past couple of years. And I wanted to show his athletes that his philosophy that you can accomplish your goals even when you're having a subpar day. Um, so for me, it was about um, it was about kind of showing showing Andrew's strength as a coach by executing what he preaches and following his race plan, his training and his race plan. So it was as much as a, as rewarding and fulfilling in a way that I was able to practice everything that I've learned over the years, but also because. Um, because I was representing my husband as one of his athletes and I wanted, I wanted his athletes to trust in him, um, and his program. Isn't that crazy what that can do to you? You know, it's like you're, you want to prove his methods and like, it sounds like mentally that really helped. Absolutely. Cause it's easy to sometimes, um, give up and alter your plans when it's just for you. You're like, Oh, this isn't a big deal what's sitting out or, you know, I don't, I don't really have to do this anymore. So let's just stay home. But, um, when you're doing, when you have a, when you have a more altruistic and, and doing it for somebody else, then it certainly draws out a deeper purpose in you. Now I've always been jealous because your husband is your massage, like always did your massage therapy, right? Yes, but he's retired his hands, unfortunately, <laughs> at least with me. I, I'm begging him, please come out of retirement. My, my legs are killing me. But um, when he became the coach of the Mammoth Track Club, he stopped, he stopped giving massages. Um, so he just has that one hat as being coach. He didn't want to like overstep bounds by being coach and therapist. Yeah. So, um, so, but when I, was, when I was at the height of my career and he was such a major supporter of mine, um, I got stretched every day before practice and got massaged every day after practice. So felt very well taken care of. And I really attribute that to how I could stay injury free for so many years. That's amazing. I mean, it's like right, it's like right at your house too. You don't have to go anywhere. I'm always begging my husband to give me a foot rub or massage my legs. And he just doesn't like to do that. I know. I know it it is hard. It is, it is is hard. So that's, I definitely not a day went by that I didn't feel grateful for his commitment, but it was, I also felt very fortunate every single day that I'm like, should I have a snack first, ice bath or massage? Like what order should I do this in? And we would chuckle like, this is a really amazing problem to have, but that's the life of an athlete. You have to you have to cater to yourself just how, just how you have to balance the books and, and do, do computer work and um, do things that a lot of people don't get to see. They get to see the performance side of things, but they don't see all the things that happen behind the scenes. And, and there's a lot of um, even more so an emphasis on recovery than there is even on workouts themselves. So you mentioned, we mentioned Jordan's performance in Chicago. Yeah. What is that like for you to watch such a young woman come out and just start killing it right from the start? Like how exciting is it to watch her career take off? 
It's fantastic. And I love the tenacity with which she runs. I love that she goes out fearlessly and on, on this wicked pace and um, just kind of a fearless, fearless type runner. And I love that. Not afraid of, of hurting or what's to come. You're just going out and you're getting after it and you're there to compete. Um, and I just feel like it, it was an amazing year. And I was reflecting on it after Chicago to be able to watch Jordan's performance, but also to be at Beach to Beacon with Joan Benoit Samuelson as she's um, going after 60-plus um, records in the 10K and running stride for stride with her. And I'm just thinking, what an amazing year to get inspired by both sides of it, from the, the woman who I saw come into the Coliseum to win the first-ever Olympic gold medal and started running that exact same year to this person that's just emerging, um, just emerging so many years later and, um, and running so well. So we're in a sport that not just on the elite level, but on the, on the masses level, you get inspired when I was at the Chicago marathon. Also after my obligations in the tents of the VIP tents, I went out on the, um, I went out on the course and just ran it backwards, cheering for people. And I was inspired. It was so amazing to see, you know, the, the people trying to get through the crux of the workout because I was running it backwards. I'm seeing the suffering going on, mile 24, mile 23, and seeing people trying to tough it out and thinking, man, this is so amazing that everyone's on their own journey, but they're going to be so proud once they get to that finish line. Do you think now there is there a bit of an American resurgence in like the marathon as far as um, how well we're doing with Jordan and Galen and Amy and Shalane. Absolutely, I think um, I think the marathon has been in a, in a good place for um, for the past decade. That uh, a lot of runners are moving up to the marathon at a young age, as opposed to waiting to till their track speed dies and um, and um, and it's kind of like their retirement um, the the bookend to retirement. So. I think um, you're seeing a lot younger athletes get out there and, and run the marathon. And I think the motivation is because of the finances. They're, the World Marathon majors, the Abbott World Marathon majors, um, have really put a lot of resources into these races. And so it makes it very desirable for, for professional athletes coming up through the sport to, to go to the roads quickly as opposed to stick to the track until, until their 30s. When, how old were you when you ran your first marathon? I was I was considered very young when I started, and I think I was 20, 26. And then what about when you ran the American record? Um, it was three years later, two years later. 28. Yeah, so 28, yeah. Now I'm quizzing you on your marathon yeah. history. I know. And and math is not my forte, so I might have just totally butchered those numbers. <laughs> but you won Lon- you won London and Chicago in your thirties, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And and it was just what what was important at the time. For some reason, I thought I have an American record and Olympic medal, and I've never won a marathon. That mm. seemed so weird to me. Mm-hmm. So that was like my big goal was like I just want to win one of these things. I want to feel what what it feels like to have that tape break across my chest in one of these races. Was that cooler than? getting a bronze medal in Athens? Um, no, it was just different. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, even, even the Olympic trials going into Athens, I didn't win. Colleen Daruk won one and I was second place. Jen Rines was third. So, um, so I didn't even win our trials race. Um, so it was, it was important to me. It was important to win that race, but 
the Amer the um, the Olympic me medal was so important because we moved to Mammoth to try to have a better um, performance on the Olympic stage. Like Meb and I both moved here with teammates and training partners from all around the com country that dedicated their themselves to flying to Mammoth Lakes and training here in the fall and spring. And it felt like we were doing something big together. The, the greatest athletes in the country were coming together to work together. And that was a big deal. It's, it even seems like a big deal now because it doesn't happen. There's now training groups, at least. There wasn't training groups um, when, when we did that. And so, um, so it's, it's novel for the best of the best to come together to help each other out. And that's what we did. And Meb and I were both able to um, walk away from the Athens Olympics earning medals, but it was it was directly um, related to the fact that we had a huge group of support here and athletes pushing each other on a daily basis. Yeah, I've actually recently been um, interviewing and talking with some of the girls from the Bowerman Track Club. Yeah. And they're kind of talking about that a lot too, just how important it is to train together rather than solo. Absolutely. Shalane was actually up here um, because so many of her teammates had track seasons. So she was up here in Mammoth training, um, training for New York. And it was great to have her here and have her on some of the runs because because it can be lonely to be in the mountains by yourself and, and be training um, when I know that she has um, a lot of teammates uh, around her typically was um, was nice for her to be here. Um, and it is important. It's important to feel that network of support, but also important to have people that push you each day. And it doesn't have to be, I think the beauty of the right people coming together is that it's not a, it's not competitive. It's helping each other. It's pushing each other and, um, and helping each, each person rise. Some people are better at sprints. Some people are better at tempo runs or long runs and everybody just drawing out the best of everybody else um, in any given workout is what, a, what good teammates do. Yeah, the the girls talk about that a lot. Like um, they do that in workouts, and then they say, "But don't get me wrong, on race day, I still want to beat my teammates." <laughs> of course, of course, and it's not a personal thing. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's um, it's it's just what you're set to do. That's what that's the point of racing is to beat the competitors. Um, but but it is important, and I would I would recommend anybody who who wants to get a little something more out of their competitive running to to find a group or find someone that they resonate well with that can can help push them push them to little faster paces in their in their workouts to help them draw out the best of themselves. Yeah, and can you talk about a little bit um, about having like healthy friendships that might still be rivals on the race course? Yeah, I mean, I think healthy relationships are the key to anything. I mean, it's it's our mental health, I think, lies in the relationships we have with people. So I take relationships pretty seriously um, that I that I want to support my teammates and feel supported by them. And um, and I think we all know the point of the point of going out and racing is to is to beat the competition. But um, but I but I think that um, that communication is really good. Like, OK, I'm. I, we're training hard on on the roads, and at six miles, I might turn to my teammate and say, "I'm going to start picking it up. Please try to come with me." Or, you know, let them know. Don't just try to like drop the hammer and drop them on the on the road. Like, hey, I'm going to pick it up at this next mile. So it's communication, and 
Um, and that's key to, to making relationships work also, is that you're just letting people know your plans, letting people know how you feel. Um, listen, I'm having a hard day out here. You're going to have to go on, go on without me, and I'm going to try to keep you in my sight. So just um, being able to, being able to um, communicate that um, is, is really important. Man, that's good marriage advice too, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good communication is good marriage advice, yes. Yes. <laughs> hey, everybody. Real quick before we continue the conversation with Dina, I want to thank Zappos for supporting this podcast. What you probably already know about Zappos is that they have fast and free shipping. You guys, I ordered something the other day from them at 4 p.m. and it was at my front door by 1 p.m. the next day. They have free and easy returns, and guess what? Now they have a running specific site. They have shoes, clothing, accessories, and they have over 1,000 trusted brand names like Nike, Adidas, Brooks, Asics, New Balance. I saw some Lorna Jane, and I actually bought a Lucy shirt from there the other day. You guys go check out their running site, zappos.com slash running, and I will have links to that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Zappos, for supporting this podcast, and thank you, listeners, in return for supporting Zappos, for supporting podcasts. That makes sense, right? All right, guys, let's enjoy the rest of the conversation with Dina. So in 2010, you became a mom. Yes. How did that change your career as a runner and what your goals were? Yeah, it it changed a lot, actually. And I thought, really, at first, I was training for the New York City Marathon when we found out that I was pregnant because I just had this awful day. Like out of the blue, had this terrible day of training, and I was so tired. Um, and it turned out that I was that I was pregnant. And so I just shifted my focus. I'm a goal oriented person. Totally shifted my focus to creating a healthy child. And it was so easy because I'm so goal oriented in in running and racing. So it was pretty pretty easy to make that adjustment. And I thought, you know what? If it was that easy, maybe maybe I'm done with this. Maybe maybe being a mom is is what I want to do, and and running won't have a place. Competitive running won't have a place anymore. But then after I had Piper, I had a very sedentary pregnancy, a hard one. Mm. But once I about a couple weeks after having her, I got the urge to to jog a little and went and did it, and I felt so exhilarated and so amazing, like such a high from like ten minutes of jogging on the treadmill at like twenty minute mile pace. Um, and I got this this major adrenaline rush from it. And so I was like, okay, I, this this is still in me. This is something I still want to do. Um, I tried to get ready for the Olympic trials, and it was hard because Piper was very fussy, and I wasn't getting in second runs. And so my training was compromised. But here I had this fussy kid, so I felt like I was doing something wrong. And so she'd cry, but I was walking out the door to train anyway. And when I, after right when I crossed the finish line at the Olympic trials, I was trying to make my fourth Olympic team. And I got sixth place, so I didn't make the team. And my first thought was that I failed as an athlete and a mom because it was really the first time that I had competitive um, interests, that, that they were competing for one another. I wanted to be a good mom. I wanted to be a good athlete, but I had to, had to figure out a way to make it work. And so I just made priorities that health and family came first and running and uh, my career came second. And I realized very soon after that that those lines often blur, that it's not, it's not so black and white because sometimes getting out to just run makes me more patient and more caring and makes me feel better about myself and certainly makes me healthier. So, um, so those lines often blur, but I, I felt like setting those priorities was really important. And then, um, and then found that 
that drive once um, once Andrew once Andrew and I started working together and rebuilding the Mammoth Track Club, I really felt that drive to um, to help my teammates and then to like I said earlier with um, with wanting to do well so that Andrew's coaching was legitimized among the team um, was to be drawn out to to run well for him. So, how old was Piper when you did the when you ran in the trials and got sixth place? Um, she was six months old. Oh, wow. She was only six months old. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So was that kind of, I mean, I'm sure you'd had, you've had races that didn't go well before, but was that one of your first kind of like crushes? Like, oh, that did not go how I wanted it to go. Um, yeah, but for a different reason, because I, I was in, I was in this in-between place. I didn't know if I should retire or if I should recommit. And I was kind of in this, in this bubble of not really understanding my place in the sport anymore. Um, and I needed to figure it out and, um, and it took a lot of figuring out, but I figured it out. And, um, and this, listen, this sport is a lifestyle. I don't feel worthy of retiring my shoes. Um, and, uh, because, because I feel like I'm a part of this community I want to be a part of this community forever. Um, and, and I want to be able to compete one day if I want to run, run hard, I want to be able to do that. And if I want to run with the masses and, or run for charity, I want to be able to do that. So I don't want to, I don't, I feel like, I feel like I'd be, um, I'd be dismissive of the community that I felt so much a part of that made me fall in love with marathon running in 2001 was my first marathon in New York city. And I fell in love with it because of that sense of community that the New York city marathon offered. And, um, and so I, I just, feel like I I never want to leave that community. You also talk about gratitude a lot. You say, I don't know if this is from your website, but you say, as an athlete, I found aside from hard work, the greatest tools for success are optimism and gratitude. These practices have led to happiness and the routine pause to realize that I'm living the life I love and dreamed of. Yay! I love that. that. Is that from your book? Um, it's not, it's, um, I mean, that, that, um, that is part of, that is really the essence of my book. And there's a lot of, of gratitude in there. Once I find it, I, I talk about the path to gratitude, um, in, in the book itself and, and how powerful and rolling kind of like that snowball effect of, of a grateful mind. Um, but it's an, it's, it's to me, the ultimate virtue, um, that anybody, should practice and adopt. There's always something to be grateful for. Even sitting in traffic, like grateful that I have a job to go to, you know, grateful, mm-hmm. grateful that I, that I have a dinner party, even though I'm going to be a half hour late to it. Um, but, um, there's, there's so much in life to be grateful for that. There's always, there's always stuff happening and how we label, how we label or what attention we give to things matters. Um, if we give the, if we give the negativity and the, the chaos, um, our attention, and that's what we're going to see. But if we give, if we give that other side, the the light and the joy and the um, the friendships that we have, and um, and the and the things around us, um, our attention that feed us well, then um, then we're going to thrive in a really big way. I'm doing a marathon next Saturday, so the day before New York, and I keep thinking about that quote because I keep thinking. Instead of feeling insanely nervous on the start line, why don't you feel insanely grateful that you get to be there? You know. Yes, and I've um, I I remember not knowing what nervous 
felt like as a child. And, um, but to me, it was standing on the start line. There was some feeling in me, what, like there was jitters in my stomach and I'd launch out on the, in this race. And to me, that was just, that was racing. And I, I thought of it as, as excitement. So at a very young age, I labeled it myself as excitement. And so anytime I I'm on the starting line and I feel that, um, I think, I think of it as, as excitement that, that this is, this is what, this is, this is where I want to be and what I want to be doing. And the fact that I have the privilege to do this and, and that the, it's unknown what's going to happen between now and the finish line is yet unknown is that feeling of excitement. Like I get, I get to, I get to steer this ship for the next 30 minutes or two hours and 30 minutes or however long the race is, um, that that's an exciting feeling. There's a lot of power and um and grandness to it and so i label that nervousness as excitement so maybe you can adopt a little a little bit of that i love that and i get to define myself when it gets hard yes exactly all these little tools yeah so you love to cook yes it's fall what is what's one of your favorite fall dishes how fun. So I love, I mean, people get so burnt out on pumpkin, but mm-hmm. I love pumpkin and squash, like dicing and caramelizing butternut squash in the oven with a mixture of butter and olive oil and fresh sage. Um, but tonight we're having a little team dinner party and, um, and it's going to be at one of our teammates' houses and he's making chili and someone else is already uh, got dibs on cornbread, which is one of my specialties. So I don't want to bring cornbread. So I am making um, empanadas stuffed with pumpkin. So it'll be like almost like little pumpkin, handheld pumpkin pies that people can have for desserts. Oh, yeah. And I'll probably sprinkle a little cinnamon and sugar over the top of the crescents as they're as they're baking. Brush a little egg white on there and sprinkle some cinnamon and sugar. But um, but I love this time of year for everything for like bulky sweaters and fires in the fireplaces and the cool mornings and the warm afternoons, that contrast and unfortunately candy corn. That's like my fall, my fall downfall is Mm. candy corn. I get like, I don't know why I get sick off of it every year and I never learn. But to me, it's like you put the big bowl in the center of the table. I'm staring at it right now as I talk to you. And I just can't help but reach in and grab a handful. (laughs) I think I saw you tweet something about candy corn, actually. Yeah. So Alexi Pappas's boyfriend, Jeremy, ordered this candy corn online that is like the ultimate candy corn. It's like this creamy vanilla texture to it. I've never tasted a better candy corn. And he gave it to me. He gave it to me before practice. And I ate the bag before practice, like before (laughs) 8 a.m. practice. I'm eating an entire Ziploc bag of candy corn. It was so delicious. Well, it's good. It's good carbs for your It's good for you, right? Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't even crash from it. Not that I'm promoting any, please right. don't do that at home. <laughs> don't do that. Don't try this at home. I'm, I was really surprised I didn't crash or have like a meltdown in the middle of the, of the run or something. It was, it, I, I think I burnt it off evenly throughout the 10 miles we had that morning. <laughs> what do you fuel with when you run a marathon? Um, so I tried so many things when I first started marathoning. And so I finally came, I mean, I had some problems with a lot of drinks. I was throwing up one on the side of the road one time, something with protein in it. And so now I finally found, um, I was doing peachy keen Cytomax until they stopped making it. That happens to everybody, right? You have a favorite shoe and the company stops making it or a favorite drink and the company stops making it. They stopped making that flavor. So now I do pomegranate berry. Uh, Cytomax, but at 
And so elite athletes get eight water bottle tables that you could place your own fluids on. So I do the pomegranate berry at all of them except 25 and 35K. I put two jet blackberry goos in four ounces of water. And it's more than double the calories of, of just the drink itself. And I certainly feel the uptick of the calories. It's really, it's really great. I wouldn't do it in all the bottles because I think it would have, it would leave me stomach distress. But towards the end of the race, when, when it starts to get hard, that um, a little bit of caffeine in them and, and all of that, um, all of those calories really make a huge difference. So that's been my like staple. So you do two of the goos in the water in each water bottle in your last two on the twenty five and the yeah okay. two goos and so four uh, total yes yeah yep. and it, and so it's it's I don't really like the consistency of it so I mix it in a little bit of water and just get to drink it and I like the you know get excited like oh my god my next water bottle is going to have a different flavor this is so exciting <laughs> like the little little things that excite you and then because you spend all morning drinking sweets like I can't wait for salty like potato chips or pretzels or pizza or a burger and french fries like I just want salt I really for like a week after that all I want is salt I can't bear to have anything sweet oh yeah I I want regular Lay's potato chips when I cross the finish that is what I want Okay, so I asked a couple people on my Facebook page uh, questions they might want to ask you, and Carla wants to know who's behind Twitter or Piper's Twitter handle. Oh, Piper's her savvy herself. Are we not allowed to to, <laughs> to disclose that? It's her handle. It's Piper. <laughs> I Piper. when she when she asked that, I thought, well, is she old enough to have a Twitter account? I don't know. I don't know when she's going to be. She's actually going to be totally mortified when she takes over her own Twitter account. She's going to have to erase all the posts that Andrew and I have done collectively. If it's really hokey and and jokester like, it's probably Andrew. And if it <laughs> and if it's sentimental or um, or like um, or inspiring, then it's probably me. <laughs> now, how old is Piper again? Well, she's born she's, in 2010. She's six. Yeah, six years old. Okay, she's still pretty little. My oldest is five, so they're pretty close in age. Oh, yeah, it's a fun age. It's when they start to read and and learn how to swim and ride bikes and have an intellectual conversation. Is she in kindergarten? She's in first grade. Okay. Yeah, man, I always heard, you know, three is so hard, three is so hard. So I thought, okay, let me get through three. And then four was even harder with my, my oldest, my son. And so now he turned five this summer. And over the past, like, three months, it has been this, like, beautiful transition. Like, oh, my gosh, you are not throwing temper tantrums anymore, finally. Yeah, you know? yeah. You grew up overnight. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like, how? Because I, I heard on a podcast this, um, you know, like, family therapist saying, when little boys turn five, something switches. And he said, but don't expect it to happen right when they turn five because it was a couple months later and then it did kind of switch. And I'm like, you are the most pleasant, nice little boy to be around. I've been waiting for this for five years. Oh, and Piper's been so amazing with me, but I've always heard that mothers and mothers and daughters have strained relationships. So I'm like trying to postpone that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying, trying to postpone those teenage years where she rolls her eyes mm-hmm. at everything that I say and doesn't want me to volunteer at her class anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be so hard. Like, no, you're going to love me. You love me. And when you grow up, we're going to be best friends again. 
Yes. Every time she says something, I write it in her in a journal that I have for her. Like, I'm going to live with you and daddy for the rest of my life because I'm never going to leave. I love you so much. Like, okay, I'm writing this one down. Mom, you're my best friend. Say that again. You're going to remember this when you're 16. Okay. So who do you look up to in the sport? Or did you look up to oh when, you were, when you were in the throes of training and racing? I, I, I look up to different people all the time. I, I feel like I'm always seeking inspiration, um, which is why I ran backwards at the, at the Chicago Marathon or stood at the finish line for a couple hours passing out medals because I love to feel inspired by people. And I live an emotional life. I cry all the time, but I, it's because everything that I do is so deeply fulfilling to me. And, um, and I feel very privileged to, to live that life that my husband but we've chosen it you could choose to to live that way um so it's not just luck or happenstance we we choose to live in a fulfilling way so i i draw on inspiration all the time and and right now it's coming from it's coming from the the younger generation of athletes coming up my teammates on a daily basis when i see a a shift in their in their mental approach or um or a leap in their in their um in their workouts that like a completely shaving off of times and mile repeats like where did that come from like that makes that like rocks my world <laughs> to, to see that happening so I look for it everywhere um and like at a very young age it was that image of Joan um and it's so funny that now I even question do, do I remember Joan waving her white painter's cap in the Coliseum because it's the most iconic visual of Olympic history? Or do I remember it because I was sitting on that hideous couch in my parents' living room watching her come into it? And I, I remember watching it, but I don't I don't know if it's just ingrained in me because of history um, and seeing that image pop up so many times. Um, so Joan inspired me um, to start running and um, and then I, I just think over the years, every every Paula's performances, like I broke Joan's record in London in two. Now I'm not going to 2003, and um, but I was third. Catherine Dereba in front of me broke 220 for like the fifth time or sixth time, and Paula broke the world record. So um, as much as that was an amazing performance. Um, and fulfilling for me to be able to to run the American record that day. Here I saw two women in front of me and was in awe at their performances, thinking, you know what, I might be able to push my own limits like further out here. So even in that even in that sense of accomplishment, I was being inspired to do better by them. So it's everywhere. You just have to like open your eyes and pay attention, and you can be inspired by by so much around you. Yeah, I also read. This is just really. Just like this other quote I read from you that says, sometimes I wish there were more hours in the day or more days to fulfill all I enjoy doing. But the most important acknowledgement is that my days are filled with joy. But I like how you said you choose that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, that came, that saying that came on the wings of just feeling like my plate was too full. I Coming off of travel, had travel coming up, had like, a month's worth of things to do in the three days that I was home. And I just sat back and said, you know what? You're feeling a little overwhelmed. Let's look at the calendar and see what we can take away. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm doing some pretty amazing things. Like, I don't want to get rid of anything in my life. And then that immediate, immediately went from feeling, like, overwhelmed and, and burdened to feeling so 
joyful of having such great things to do on a daily basis. And, and it just takes that, it's like that shift. And I'm amazed by it every time, what it does to me, every time I make that shift. So you said that writing the book was, did you say it's the hardest thing you've ever done? The hardest thing ever. Harder than any marathon in a different way? I never want to hear the word deadline again. My daughter (laughs) says that she, she thinks chapter should be a bad word. (laughs) Um, So it was just hard. It was hard on my entire family. It was hard on them to not have dinner on the table at 6, 6 p.m. every night because I was still, still trying to get a chapter right or a paragraph right. Um, I remember spending four days on an opening paragraph for Mm. one chapter. I just, it just wasn't resonating right. And it was like a single word that just was ruining it. I finally fixed it and the problem went away. But it was like just agonizing over little things like that. That really makes you respect an author, you know? I mean, to think that you literally... Because I feel like I would be um, inclined to say, I can't spend four days on one paragraph. That's insane. This is never going to end. But the fact that you just kept with it until you knew you had the word right. Yeah, and it was it was it, and I didn't realize that it was one word that was messing it up. It's it's just sometimes you think you say the same thing over again, and you think that like from processing it years ago, but you realize that you weren't processing it in the right way to begin with. Yeah. So it was that type of reflecting that was so hard in this book writing process. Deadlines are hard. Yeah. <laughs> What's one thing you'd like to do professionally or personally that you haven't done yet? I think the one thing I haven't done yet that I would like to, to do is uh, complete my cookbook. And I never thought I'd say this after after finishing my memoir, um, <laughs> but I, I would really like to do a cookbook. It's something that I've been working on for, for a decade or longer, um, or create a um, some type of app for runners that when they get to a certain city to race, that they can click on the app and find out where to eat and where to run in that city. That's a great idea. I actually was going to mention the cookbook thing, but then I was like, Lindsay, did you not do your research well enough? Maybe she has written a cookbook. Oh, no. <laughs> I and didn't I, think that I'm, you had yet. I haven't. I put recipes out there. Um, like Runner's World did a cookbook, and I gave them a couple recipes for it. Um, and so I do have recipes out there, um, even in certain magazines um, have printed them, but haven't haven't archived them together, but I have really great stories behind some of the some of the recipes. So it is something that I do want to share. Yeah, you should definitely do that. It would probably be it would be a New York Times bestseller, I'm sure. But my my cookbook would be like a handful of this and a pinch of that. Sure. Yeah. But then you'll have people like me who don't naturally cook and they're and I would just totally mess it up. Yeah. Yeah. I think my recipes are pretty fail proof. Yeah. So. Um, okay, what is, <laughs> we've probably already answered this, so we can pass if you want, but what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Um, an accomplishment I'm most proud of is my daughter, which seems a little weird, but I think when you live a fulfilling life that Andrew and I have, that we are doing exactly what we want to do every single day, and to be able to share that with our daughter, I think is a way to pass it on, and I think that what you have is never more important than the moment you can pass it on to somebody else, whether it's sharing money or knowledge or your life itself. Um, to be able to share that with our daughter has made me very proud. What are some of the most important um, values you try to instill in Piper? 
Um, the greatest values, most important values, I think, are, are gratitude and kindness. I, I feel that, um, I think it was Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou who said, people will forget what you said and forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so I feel like kindness is a is really important, um, important contribution to, to put on the world, whether it's holding the door for someone at the grocery store or letting someone go in front of you in the grocery store because they have so few items and you've got your cart overflowing or, you know, there's just like tiny gestures that you can do. Piper and I every year bring chocolates to the post office. We have a post office that gets so overwhelmed during the holidays uh, that um, that it's just a, a kind gesture as they're stressing out and dealing with angry people in line that we can show them our appreciation. So kindness, kindness and gratitude are important um, both for the self and for those around you. That's a really good idea. Take something nice to the people at the post office. Yeah, or wherever people are stressed out during the holidays, because I I think that a lot of times holidays are really glorified in people's minds. But on the other side, it's it's sometimes the hardest time of the year for other people. Yeah, that's so true. Speaking of kindness, I just have to tell this story really quickly. I was at the grocery store today, and this isn't kind, but I was thinking, how, how could I have been kind to this lady in return? My baby, I have a one-year-old, and he didn't have socks on, and it's kind of cold. And this old woman looked at me and said, you need to put socks on that kid. He is going to get pneumonia and die. <laughs> Literally told me my kid was going to die. Oh my gosh. It's one of those things that you're like two days later, you think of what to say, but in the moment you're just, your jaws just drop. I know. I I looked at her like, is she, is this happening? And I, so I said, oh, he's fine. He kicked him off in the car. Um, and then she yelled at me because my older son didn't have a coat on. And I was like, okay, maybe my kids are underdressed, but they aren't even noticing and they're fine. So now in what you're saying, I'm like, what was something really kind I could have said back to her, you know, even yeah. though I was kind of angry. And I thought, you know, it's a good thing I have my thick skin on today because I just, it didn't phase me at all. Um, yeah. On another day, your lip could have quivered totally. a little. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. If oh it, my gosh. If it would have been the wrong time of the month or whatever, hormonally, yeah. <laughs> I would have been in tears for sure. My gosh, like maybe just to like, thank you so much for your concern. That's very generous of you. My goodness. Do you have socks in your car by chance that I could put on him? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you happen to have a spare? It would really help me out right now because I'm overwhelmed. (laughs) Totally. Um, Okay. What are you loving right now? And this can be like a drink or a gadget or apparel or a favorite workout. My house. We've been we've been out of our house for close to six months and we got to move back in this weekend and I feel like so grateful to have my home back. There's um, there's no place like it, as they say. (laughs) Is your kitchen your favorite place to be in your house? It is. It is. We spend a lot of time in the kitchen. What is the best, most recent book you've read? Oh, Finding My Virginity by Richard Branson. Okay, I need to add that to my list. What it what is it even about? It's just about it's about his his past and kind of his business model, but you get to see who he is and why why everything he does is so successful and why things fail. Like but but that that risk um it's just a a great testament to his his methods and he's a very grateful guy. He's positive and upbeat and and demands a lot out of people, but um, um, but he he gets the best of the best because 
um, because of those high expectations. So he's just a fascinating guy. And I, I, I liked him before reading the book and I like him even more now. I love that when I read a book and it makes me like the person more. Yeah. And you know what book, um, probably one of the most profound books that I read in the past few years, because I was trying to read a lot of sports memoirs to see what I liked and didn't like. Mm. Um, and the, the two that emerged, um, out of this huge crop of books as, as my ideals was Eat and Run by Scott Jurek and Open by Andre Agassi. And I love Scott Jurek. So I knew I would love his book, um, which is fantastic. And, um, but I, I didn't like tennis, and I thought Andre Agassi was some punk that that played played a sport I didn't like. And I read that book, and am like a huge Andre Agassi fan now, and and totally appreciate the game. That, so it was a powerful memoir. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as a runner. I don't know, you know, in someone who's never played tennis, for that matter, I don't know that I would pick up his book, but right. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, I, there have been, I won't mention them, but there have been a couple books like that that I've picked up and I'm like, ooh, I don't really like that person anymore. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, all right, And you put questions. yourself at risk. Unfortunately, you put yourself at that risk when you write a memoir. That's true. And I'm ready for that. <laughs> well, and that's true. And in anything, you, when you are in the public eye or when you put your voice out there, I mean, even with this podcast, I think about that. I know, I know there are things I say sometimes that could offend someone or make them not like me. And that's just like what we do when we put ourselves out there absolutely absolutely um do you watch any shows i don't we don't have tv in our house that well we have a we have a television that's hooked up to a vcr in this loft that you have to climb up um, a ladder to get to um so we don't watch a lot of a lot of um a lot of movies and we we don't have television cable such to to even watch shows i kind of wondered that i had a feeling that you didn't even have cable I'd be the type of person to get hooked on a show and like obsessed about it. Like my mom sent me DVDs of Downton Abbey, which I loved. And she would send like five episodes on one disc and I would sit and watch all of them at one time. So I could get hooked on a lot of shows, but I can't even fathom having the time to to get cable and sit down and, and get obsessed yet. <laughs> I know. Most people say, we don't have cable, but they have Netflix and Hulu and all that. And I'm like, well, you really are watching shows, though, because that's what yes. I have. And I might yes. not have, like, major cable, but I have access to all that through those uh, channels. Um, right, and I'd be the, I'd be the person, because we go to hotel rooms and we turn on television and we're like zombies in front of the television watching TV. <laughs> so I, I think that a, a lot of our life would pass us by if we did have television, because we're busy all the time. If that time was taken up with TV watching, then we would not get anything accomplished. Okay, so do you have a favorite nonprofit you like to support? Yes, I have a... Um, so Smash Face Rescue is a is a bully breed dog rescue in Southern California. It's where we've gotten all of our dogs. Um, we had a Neapolitan Mastiff named Sage, and now we have um, Manzanita, who's a dog de Bordeaux, or a French Mastiff, and Duke, who is an English Mastiff. So we are a big dog family, and um, and we always get our, our dogs from them. They, they rescue them from... Sometimes dire situations and other times just abandon and, um, and find loving homes for them. And then also there's um, 
Disabled Sports of the Eastern Sierra, which is here in Mammoth Lakes, and what that um, what that uh, nonprofit does to give challenged uh, challenged people their lives back is extraordinary. They have a Wounded Warriors program. They're building a huge facility to be able to um, to cater to people who are learning how to learning how to readjust with disabilities or altered altered um, lifestyles, whether it's mental or or physical. Um, and the love and volunteer core of this group is so powerful and so beautiful. And I love getting up on the mountain, getting inspired by watching someone be able to fly down that mountain on a single ski when they just lost their leg a year prior. So it's a beautiful, beautiful program. Wow, that sounds amazing. Okay, one last, uh, uh, one last thing before uh, New York this weekend. What's What's your advice or what's your words of wisdom for anybody running a fall marathon or New York this weekend? Uh, for anyone running a fall marathon this weekend or next, I, I say trust in, trust in your training. And then when you're in the race, um, just grab inspiration the entire morning for however long you're out there, whether it's, um, whether it's an internal drive or a distraction or um, absorbing your surroundings, just keep searching for that silver lining that's going to get you through it because you're, you'll be really proud for the fight once you get to that finish line. Mm, perfect way to sign off this interview. Thank you so much, Dina, for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. Thank you, Lindsay. This was long overdue, but um, but very fun to spend the morning with you. Totally. All right. Well, enjoy New York and enjoy the evening with your family. Thank you. Good luck at your race as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Dina, for joining us and for sharing all of your wisdom and great advice with the listeners and myself. I feel like I could write a huge notebook full of notes just on everything that you said. You guys can find me on Instagram, lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter, at lindsayhine. And you can also find the podcast on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. We also have a group for our book club and all other things podcast related. It's just I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine group where we did just pick the November book club for the month of November. We are reading the book. You are a badass. So that book had been recommended by several guests on the show in the past, including Emily Enfeld, Shelby Houlihan, and Courtney Freyrich. So we're going to go for that book for the month of November. Join us over in the group to be a part of that conversation. All right, you guys, good luck to anybody running this weekend. Have a wonderful Friday. Have a great weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.